Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by guest speaker Mike Woodruff. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Please join me in a prayer of illumination. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. Give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose that way of your wisdom through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Luke 10, verse 25. A lawyer stood to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spent. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning to all of you at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, it's a privilege to have an opportunity to open God's Word for you today. I must confess I feel a little cheated that uh, I'm not able to be there. Uh, it would be fun to see you and to be in your beautiful sanctuary, and um, I just want to start by saying I'm a big fan of your of your pastor, uh, Raymond, and uh, appreciate him, had him preach at Christ Church, um, so 
Uh, I'm feeling a little, a little cheated that I don't get to be with Ray and I don't get to be with all of you, but um, we are making do. So you are aware, no doubt, uh, of the events of the day. The, the pain and the hurt, the tension, the misunderstanding, the ongoing demonstrations, much of it linked to the video of the death of, of black men, in particular George Floyd, some of it um, being linked to longer standing uh, generational and historic issues. Alongside of this, there's all the fear and frustration caused by COVID and sheltering in place and economic disruption and all of that. I could go on. I, I, I don't think that I need to. We all agree this is not a great moment. There's plenty of anger and anxiety, mistrust and confusion, not a lot of peace, love, and understanding. And so we find ourselves asking, so what am I supposed to do at this moment? So now what? How am I supposed to think about what's going on? How am I supposed to respond? What does it look like to follow Jesus at this particular moment? So over the course of the last uh, couple months, I have been thinking and speaking and writing uh, about some of the particular issues of the moment. And I've tried to, to lay down several sort of North Star kinds of guiding principles to help us as a church, Christ Church, think about what's going on. And I've said things like racism is evil and the problem is bigger than we may think. And we have no choice but to reform. Violence is wrong. The church needs to step up. The church needs to be prepared to step up for an extended period of time. Um, when people push back and ask, so tell me, Mike, what are you doing? Or what is Christ Church doing to try and counter and end racism? I find myself saying, well, uh, perhaps not enough. Now, um, I want to point out all the things that we are doing, but that's just pride and ego and, and defensiveness, and it's not helpful. I need to concede, honestly, uh, that I can, that we can do more. But I'm quick to counter and to say, look, you do understand that the solution for the challenges that are in front of us is for the kingdom of God to be realized. Right? I mean, you do get, right? You do understand that the solution to most of the problems before us is the church being the church, the church growing in grace and power and then serving. The church seeing new people come to faith and being transformed by the love of God and then becoming transforming agents out in the world. You understand that without God, I have absolutely no idea how we solve these problems. I have very little hope that community programming or laws passed in D.C. or in Springfield can fix what is broken. Because while I do believe that there are systemic issues in play, at the deepest levels, I don't think civic government can fix what is going on. And I'm a fan of civic government. But I think the reason civic government can't fix what's going on is because the biggest problems are me. And the biggest problems are you. 
And God's plan for fixing you and fixing me is, is communities of grace, hope, and love based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's people who are transformed by the gospel and who then have their lives shaped far more by Jesus than by MSNBC or Fox News. It's people who are going to go out as salt and light in the world. So when people ask me, what are you doing? How are you proposing that we fix this? I say, you realize that racism is, is endemic to the human condition. It's not just an American issue. First of all, it is a, it is a nearly an eternal issue. We don't go back, uh, we don't go back just a couple months. We don't even go back 450 years. We go back to Genesis 3. We go back to sin. And you realize that the Bible is full of racists. Jonah was a racist. And Peter, before Acts 10, is a racist. And you realize that everywhere we look in the world, we see that the people are tripped up by this. So the first thing I want to say is, you realize that trying to end racism is, is just simply way too big of a challenge. I can't change other people's hearts. I can't even change my own heart. I'd be happy if we could find ways in which we treat each other with respect and have laws and systems that apply equally. And then the next thing I want to say is you realize that, that, the, that the issue of ending racism is simply way too small. <laughs> we want to see people come to faith in Christ and gain eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and reconciliation. We have to think bigger about how we are going to do this. What we really want, of course, is not just an end of racism. We want human flourishing. And that means that we're going to have to go after some other issues as well. So one of the books that um, I am often handing out, and it seems like a very Evanston kind of book to hand out, is um, a book written 50 years ago by Charles Malik, a UN um, uh, representative. Uh, he actually held the top five posts. I think he's the only person who ever held all five posts in the UN. But uh, he wrote a book called A Christian Critique of the University. And uh, I was quite enamored with this book when I was a college pastor. And uh, in it, he says there are seven institutions in society, the family, the church, state, uh, uh, business, education, the arts. He's got seven institutions. And he says that uh, the most significant one, and this is his claim in his book, the most significant one is the university because the university trains the leaders for all, other, the, all of the other six. Now, I, I actually uh, now disagree with this premise, but I was looking at this book recently and I was thinking about how things have changed over the last 50 years. Over the last 50 years, the influence, generally speaking, of the family and of, uh, of church has gone down and the influence of, of the state has, has gone up. And I just want to say, uh, look, I'm not an anti-government guy. Not at all. Romans 13 makes it clear that government has a very significant and important role. But government is not able to form us in healthy ways. You cannot tax a society enough to hire enough police to keep people in line. You cannot tax a society enough to hire people to love other people in ways that healthy families will love for free. So what am I doing to end racism? What am I doing to address these problems? The first and foremost thing is trying to grow a healthy church. And I would commend that to you. And I would ask you to join with me in praying that people come to faith and that more churches get started and pray for not just revival, but pray for reformation, 
Pray that people that are racist would have their heart changed by Jesus and go from being small-minded and angry and full of hate to being people who are willing to help whoever around them needs help. I have seen this happen. I've seen this happen in my own extended family. So um, the first thing I want to say is, look, we uh, come at these challenges of this moment. I come at them saying, we've got to see the church grow. So that leads to a pivot here. That leads to the question, what exactly does that look like? How are we supposed to think about this? And for that, I want to go to look at Jesus. So I want to share the answer that Jesus would give if we asked him the question that I asked at the very beginning of this. So now what? So now what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to think about this? How am I supposed to understand this situation? So as you know, in the Bible, we do not have any specific uh, instances of Jesus being asked. So what do you do during a global pandemic uh, when there's national racial tension, when there's economic disruption, where, there's, where there are a number of things going on uh, that are undermining society? We don't have that question. However, we do have Questions framed to Jesus around infectious disease. We watch how he interacts with lepers. And we do have instances where Jesus comments on racial tension. We have the Samaritans. And the Bible actually contains a number of accounts of protests. The Jews were always sort of protesting. They were, they were Rome's biggest headache. Uh, and uh, some of these protests were not just protests. They were not just looting. They were full-out revolts, and, um, and I don't know that there was any you know, autonomous zones that were created, but uh, we have some of this as a backdrop. And we also, of course, have lots of situations where Jesus was fielding questions. So I don't think it's very hard for us to imagine if we were to ask Jesus what to do to sort of pull some of these things together and, and to imagine the kind of answer he would give. It, because what would happen is, if we asked Jesus this, he would tell a story. And uh, this story would be interesting, and it would be simple. And for a while, as you're listening to the story, you might think it wasn't necessarily on point. And, uh, and, and, and yet it's the kind of story that you found you couldn't exactly get out of your head. And days later, it's still playing. And eventually you realize, oh my goodness. <laughs> he didn't answer my question. He looked right into my heart and he answered the question that I should have asked, the question underneath the question. And he called me in a whole new and unexpected way to go forward. So I want us to look at one of these stories. They're, obviously, these are called parables. This one is found in Luke 10, and it follows the interaction between Jesus and a religious leader. The whole thing was set up as a trap, trying to get Jesus. Uh, the religious leader begins by saying, Teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus does what he almost always does when he's asked a question, and that is he asks a question back. So Jesus asks, well, what does the Bible say? And the man says, well, the Bible says I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. Um, and uh, 
and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, good, well, good answer. You know, go do that and you'll be fine. And of course, um, the problem with the answer is that we can't actually do that. That's one of the purposes of the law is to help us understand objectively that we fall short of keeping the law. And so there's a little bit of banter going on. You can imagine Jesus sort of looking at the crowd and saying, hey, good job, we'll just go do that. And the, the guy, feeling a little bit uh, put down, says, well, well, wait, wait, not so fast. I got a question. Who is my neighbor? Like, in, and so now he thinks he's sort of one up Jesus because uh, this is the thing that, that the religious leaders had been debating. In Leviticus uh, chapter 19, I believe, 1918, there's a command to love our neighbor and this was often debated, and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders at the time of Jesus had decided that um, neighbors referred only to Jews, and as a matter of fact, the Pharisees had decided that neighbors only referred to other Pharisees. But there was debates going on, so this is a popular debate, and so the guy throws it out, and sort of, you know, he's looking at Jesus as sort of being a, uh, an uneducated um, local hick, and so he's trying to, uh, he's trying to upend him. Jesus responds with a story, and now I'm reading. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. So this was a well-known path. I've been there a couple times. Jerusalem's up on a mountain. Jericho's down. So if you're, if you're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, the good news is it's, it's 17 miles, mostly downhill. But the bad news is it's a windy road, which means there's lots of places for bad guys to hide. It was a popular place for you to get mugged. So there once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes. They beat him up and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. So first century Jewish culture was very stratified. Priests, Hebrew speaking, lots of education. Um, they didn't sort of, you know, mix it up with the, with the hoi polloi. They, uh, they didn't go there. So um, he probably um, might have helped. Well, let me say probably he might have helped if the man hadn't been naked and he had some ability to figure out, is this a wealthy man? Should I help? But plus there's just the concern that the bad guys, whoever beat this guy up, they're still around. I, I've got to move on. So he doesn't stop. Next person up is a Levite. Another religious man, uh, slightly lower than a Pharisee. <clears throat> and uh, he doesn't stop either. Then uh, a Samaritan traveling the road came to him. So the Samaritans are the Jews' enemies. Like the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans returned the favor. They hated the Jews back. They, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as apostates. They were worse than, than, than the Gentiles. They were heretics and uh, they called them dogs. Uh, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans had been going on for a thousand years. And um, yeah, there just was, there's no love lost here. And, and not that long ago, like 6 BC, the Jews had, had uh, gone and, and destroyed the Samaritan's temple. And then not too long before Jesus, the Samaritans had come back and at Passover, they had desecrated the Jewish temple. So they really don't get along. It would have been hard for Jesus to pick a more shocking hero for this story than he does. So it's almost like 
you know, this guy's beat up and the first person that walked by him is an evangelical pastor. And then the next person, but he doesn't stop and help. The next person to come by is a Catholic priest. He doesn't stop and help. Then, and now you have to figure out who you think is the least likely person to help. Is it a, is it a radical member of ISIS? Is it some thug uh, with, you know, leather and, and pan baggy pants and lots of gold and guns? Is it, is it, I don't know, who's the least like, maybe for some of you, it's a Donald Trump supporter. Who is the least likely person you can imagine stopping to help? The point is, Jesus turns the story upside down by making the wrong guy the good guy. So in this world, it was a Samaritan. So I'm reading, a Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto a, his donkey, which meant he's now going to have to walk. He led him to an inn and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took one of two, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper saying, uh, take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll be back and I'll settle up. Then Jesus asks, what do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by the robbers? And the, the religious leader, the young man says, the one who treated him kindly. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, right? The one who treated him kindly. Jesus said, good, go and do the same. So notice a few things here. Uh, Jesus' parables always are, are, are marked by a twist, a, a surprise. And, uh, and in this case, the surprise is how Jesus turns the question around. So what, what you might have expected, what everybody is expecting, is that the guy who's beat up, um, should, should I help this guy who's been beat up? Right, the first the the priest comes by, then the Levite comes by, then the Samaritan comes by. But what you're expecting is that it would be this: if, if a Samaritan is going to be part of the story, the question is, should I help the Samaritan? At which case, this religious leader would probably say, "Well, you know, you can't help everybody. There's limitations to this." But Jesus doesn't ask that question. He says, "If you've been beat up, how do you want the people walking by you to think about whether or not they should help you?" The second thing to notice here is that Jesus doesn't miss an opportunity to talk about racism. I mean, it, it's, it's not part of the question, really. But he goes out of his way to sort of speak against it. The third thing to notice is sort of the radical hospitality, the holistic way that Jesus is suggesting that we care for others. It's a big, all-encompassing, practical definition of love and being a good neighbor. Fourth, um, it's, it's worth noting that he turns this not into a discussion about government programs. This is very practical, helping the person that's right in front of you. Um, I would say one of the big things that you've got to see here, and you might not pick this up the first couple times you read this, this story, but really you and I are, this, are the, the guy that's been beat up, <laughs> Right? So Jesus is the good Samaritan. He comes and he does everything for us. We are as good as dead. 
and beat up and we can do nothing for ourselves. And there's no reason in one sense for, for the good Samaritan to stop and to help us. But Jesus does at great personal expense. He does everything for us. He rescues us. So um, where does that leave us? I'm, I'm running out of time as I, I preach longer at my church. You probably don't want Ray to hear that, but I do. And so now I'm running out of time, but let me just say a couple things here to wrap this up. First of all, if you have not ever understood yourself to be the person that's been beat up and reached out to Jesus, the, the good Samaritan, the ultimate good Samaritan who can rescue you, then that's my first plea. Um, Christianity is not this I do. It's not about you being a good person. It's not about you following the example. It's not about you becoming you know, morally pure. You can't do it. Uh, hopefully you've realized that. We don't simply need uh, uh, a teacher. We don't simply need an example. We need a savior and Jesus Christ is savior. So I would encourage you to reach out and embrace Christ as savior. But let me back up from uh, just a second and say, um, look, if you have made that decision, then I hope you realize that we are called to think differently than everyone else is thinking about the situations before us. I hope you hear the challenge, the disruptive challenge that comes from Jesus. You can imagine how upset the religious people of his day were to hear Jesus make a Samaritan the hero. It was offensive to them. Parables are almost all designed to surprise and to offend, to smuggle truth under the radar and help us see a situation differently. I want to ask you to reframe the events and challenges of the day. I want to start by confessing I don't have the solutions to this, I, nor do I think for a moment that I see these things clearly or have any insight that no one else has. What I believe is that we have problems. Over the last few months, uh, we have surfaced some pretty significant challenges. What I also believe is, is that we are called to design some paths forward and that that process will be difficult and messy, but it involves the church being the church, a community of grace, hope, and love that is committed to sharing the good news of Christ in reconciliation with God and then seeing people transformed to be transforming agents in their world. I also will just note, uh, and with this I'll end, it's a whole lot easier to see the log in someone else's eye than it is to see it in our own, different parable. But, um, but this parable sort of asks us to reframe the situations and to look at them differently. May Jesus disrupt us all, and may we become the church that he has called us to be. God bless you.